Would you pray with me before we open up God's word this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are not worthy to hear your voice and live. And we therefore thank you for Jesus, the Christ, your son. And we ask in his name that you would help us and you would cause us to understand your good word before us today. Please help us to see the Lord Jesus. Please help us to rejoice in him. Father, open, a, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Plant that which is yours in us and grow abundant life. Lord, may we receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, please get a Bible this morning. We're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of John called Life in His Name. And we're going to be in John chapter 5 today. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to show you something. This, if you can see it hopefully, is a drinking glass. And there's water in it. Now here's a question for you, and maybe it's a question that's familiar to you. When you're looking at this glass, do you see it half full or do you see it half empty? I mean, you probably have heard this kind of thing before, but if the glass is half full, you're likely an optimist, a person who sees the silver lining with every cloud. And if you see the glass half, dim half empty, you're likely the pessimist, the person who moves from the rainy cloud to the sun after the storm and says that the sun's too hot. You, there's one, per one person who exercises and says, I can do this, I'm getting better. And the other, others of us hobbling around afterwards says, this feels better, I'm still fat, and I'm in pain. Now I bring all that up because I want to ask another question. This, back to the glass of water. Does it really matter if the glass is half empty or half full if I tell you that the water in this glass, in this drinking glass, mind you, is toilet water? What's the bigger problem when that new piece of information comes? Empty or full, there's water in this glass that should not be there. Jesus encounters people, a variety of people in his earthly ministry. And he finds people like at the beginning of John chapter 3, like Nicodemus, whose, whose glass seems to be half full, but who doesn't know that he needs clean water. He needs to be born again. And today, in John chapter 5, Jesus meets two groups who are actually half-empty people, who think they know what they need, but don't know that the water they've got is worthless. And you and me, optimist, pessimist, happy, discouraged, however, every single one of us, apart from Jesus, Needs the, needs the glass filled with drinkable water. So hopefully you've gotten to John chapter 5 this morning. And we're going to read from God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let's listen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in... Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool 
called by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working You see, the clean water, the drinkable water we need is that Jesus shows mercy and works for our rest. There are two large sections in this passage. They're related, but they're centered around mercy and rest. So let's jump in first. Jesus shows mercy. I mean, if you'll recall, Jesus has come back into Israel from John chapter 4, a very fruitful trip into Samaria. And now back in his home country, he comes as the Christ, the Son of God, and things change there to his own people who have a much more mixed reception of him. You know, after some time in Galilee, Jesus comes as a law-abiding Jew, and that's important to remember as you look at the life of Jesus, by the way. He comes as a law-abiding Jew to, the, to a feast, a holiday celebration in Jerusalem. It's to be a time of joy, a time of remembrance, and Let's just, let's just put it out there. Jewish celebrations usually beat our cel- celebrations as Americans. They, they, they really do. The fee- th- this kind of feast is not only saturated with meaning, like rich, thousands of years heritage meaning. Who can say that for their birthday? <laughs> There's rich food, and it lasts the bouncy houses and just up for an afternoon, and we don't, and they don't just gather on a, on a morning. This is this kind of feast is for days. So here comes Jesus to enjoy that celebration, and where do we find it? Well, he's at the nursing home. He's at the homeless shelter. He's at the clinic, where it says, verse 3, in these colonnades, and when you hear that, when you hear colonnades, think of the front of our current building with the pillars and the the landing area there. It would be kind of similar. 
In these, verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. A time of celebration. And Jesus goes to the place where celebration may have been the last things upon the minds of the broken people of Jerusalem in that basically slum by the Bethesda pool. Now, as we get going here, you might notice that your Bible moves from verse 3 to verse 5. And verse 4 is missing. There's just some information there. Earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John pretty consistently don't have the content of verse 4. And it's, it's found that later in church history that that information was added to help explain the possible healing that may have taken place at the pools of Bethesda. But what is known from the text is that the sick, the multitude of invalids, congregated around these pools in the superstitious hopes that if they could be the first ones to get to the water when it was stirred up, as the, man, the sick man who we're going to look at today says, they would be healed. That was their hope. That's the water they're banking on. So in, into this scene walks Jesus, and of the perhaps hundreds of people, hundreds of sick people there, Jesus walks among them and finds one. Just one. He may have healed others, we're not told. And, but we do need to know that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended, this place was still full of sick people. But we are told right here in this text that Jesus came to show mercy to this one. One whose glass wasn't even half empty wasn't even half full. There may have been a drop in it. And he may have been the saddest case there, even though he might not have been as physically impaired as some. See, as we, as we read, we find out that he was at least lame, unable to walk, and he was perhaps only able to drag himself around by his arms. He, doesn't, he seems to be able to move somewhat. And he may have lived in these colonnades or been taken there day by day as his caretakers went about their daily lives. But what's shocking is that his case is 38 years old. 38 years! Jesus had not been the Word incarnate as long as this man had been defeated by a debilitating chronic illness or pain. So let's put this in perspective. Almost four decades. No cure. Days. Weeks. Months. Years. Decades. Rolled by in a fog of the same thing laying on a beat-up rug amongst the diseased, the blind, hearing them moan, seeing everyone positioned toward the healing water. Can you imagine his own eyes 
staring at that pool for 38 years. His tears having long dried up. He's there almost vacantly waiting for the water to move. And every time that it did for the last decades, the crowd of the sick would stagger, hobble, drag themselves toward the water. And the rumor was that the first to get there would be healed and everyone else would have to wait for the next time. Well, that first never happened for this man. He was too slow. No one could carry him. No one would carry him. And desperate people would cut off the path for his dragging his body to the water. And year after year, he would miss it. But year after year, he would try. Year after year, he would try to save himself from his own sorrows. This is a sad state. And we should pity this man. But what is amazing about this text is that Jesus walks into this and he singles out that man and he comes up to him. Jesus, who knows all things, he knew that he had been there a long time, the passage says. He says to this defeated man, verse 6, do you want to be healed? (laughs) The church has puzzled over this question for centuries. Of all the questions he could ask this man. You know, this seems like the this seems like asking the man along the side of the road, staring into the open hood of his truck, something wrong with your truck? Or asking a woman who may or may not be pregnant, when's the little one due? <laughs> you just don't ask those questions. Do you want to be healed? What's Jesus getting at here? Because he doesn't, Jesus never wastes words. And you know, Jesus may be asking him this question to test him, to see if he truly still desires to be healed. And just at FYI, this is the kind of question that only Jesus has the authority to ask. But if he's asking this to test the man, we can tell from the text by the question he asks, by the statement rather that he asks, that he says at the end of the passage, near the end of the passage, that this is for a far deeper healing than the fact that his legs haven't worked in 38 years. Again, we must come back to this. Jesus Jesus showing mercy is not so that the man can merely walk again and then dismiss God in his salvation that has personally come to him. No. Do you want to be healed is a question that goes for the same result as quenching the Samaritan woman's true thirst and and addressing the royal official's real problem that the the dying of his son exposed. Do you want to be healed? 
is, do you want life? Jesus asks him, in effect, do you want to be set free? And he asks that of us in a way. Because the bigger picture is that our lameness, our invalidity, comes from conception. We are born into sin, spiritual death, where everything is distorted and diseased and not working as it ought to. We're sinful by that nature, and we, are dis- we display sinfulness by choice. And days, weeks, months, years perhaps pass, and we sit by a man-made pool that cannot save us. But oh, how we try! We try to drag ourselves to the pool, thinking that it will save us. But Jesus comes into that place. The word became flesh and dwelt among us into our hopeless state. And he asks to get us to look up at him. As John 3.15 says, anyone who looks to him, the bronze serpent, who looks to Jesus crucified on the tree. Do you want to be healed? So let's put it back in perspective. If you've been staring at that pool for 38 increasingly bitter years, how are you going to respond to this kind of question? Well, frankly, the man's response is mixed. Verse 7. Sir, at least he's polite, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. He is still thinking that the pool can save him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's still thinking that the pool can save him. And what he he doesn't see and who he's not looking to is the fact that the creator of the universe, the author of life, the one who knows his body inside and out, is standing right there. Asking him if he wants to be healed. And yet he is still looking to superstition in his own effort to save him. And there are millions, billions perhaps of people in our world today who think exactly like this man. And we all once dead in our sins, following the passions of our flesh and the prince of the power of the air have all at one point in time thought that looking to superstition, looking to that which cannot save as what can save is to be by our own effort. I mean, the reality is this man is insane. He is doing the exact same thing over and over, day after day, year after year, And he's expecting a different result. He can't save himself. Yet in his response, it's kind of weird. It's again, it's mixed. He actually admits his helplessness. Sir, I have no one. Interestingly, he has no one to help. 
He might say that to get Jesus, hey, can you take me to the water? He actually somewhat admits his helplessness, but he basically blames others for it. If someone were there, I'd be able to get there. And if these other diseased people wouldn't get in the way, then I could make it. So let me ask this question. If we were Jesus, and we were looking at this grumpy guy, what do you think? Do you think we would be eager to help him? I mean, do you think he would be deserving? I mean, 38 years is a long time. You deserve a break, buddy. He's pitiable. He also seems pretty grumpy. I mean, he blames other sick people from him keeping him getting well, from a cure. A cure, frankly, that has about as much success as essential oils curing COVID-19. <laughs> there were probably at least a dozen people in these colonnades also who, if they knew that Jesus was there and could heal, they would have been the sweetest and nicest people and seemed far more deserving of healing. So if you were in Jesus' shoes, you, not being Jesus, but in Jesus' shoes, what would you do? Well, let me ask another question. Do you know what mercy is? Louis Burkhoff, long, long ago, as a theologian, he said that mercy is this. He says, mercy is the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress irrespective of their deserts, or to put it in our language, our deservedness. Mercy functions apart from deserving. If anything, it is actually, mercy is actually seen as merciful precisely because the person who has, is shown mercy is usually undeserving or even ill-deserving. And anyone who sins against God is considered an enemy of God. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, shows mercy. And he does it here. And he demonstrates that he is not only the God, merely the, he's not only the God of salvation, which is our true biggest need, but he is the God of salvation in its fullest consummate sense, both spiritual and physical. He has created both. And he, apart from the man asking, apart from the man really expressing much desire to him, apart from any deserving this man may or may not have, verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Again, God speaks and it's done. Done in his timing, in his way. Pictures of God's right-side-up world. Here in John, pictures of that are breaking in when people are healed. And they're meant to display that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, has come and is showing mercy.
after this sign, here's another pointer to Jesus as the one to trust. You would think that after this sign, amazing thing has happened. Jesus disappears as we're, as we're told later in the text and people are probably just wow in the colonnade. The man picks up his mat and walks. We have no record as he says thank you. We don't know what his emotional level is or anything like that. But we would think that if something like this happens and when stuff like this happens in our world, where sick people are made well, when people recover by God's grace, not just by human intervention, you would think that the people all around would be just breaking forth in praise. The one sick man is now healed. The guy for 38 years couldn't move his legs and now he's walking normally. No physical therapy, he's, he's up with a mat on his shoulder. And in the text, he actually seems to be given a new identity. He said earlier, he's called the sick man. And then, then after Jesus heals him, it's the man who has been made well. He has a new identity and people should be praising God for what God has done for this man. And especially at a feast, a Jewish holy day. Joy was supposed to be in the air already. But what are we shown? We're shown, we are given the, this massive hinge sentence at the end of verse 9. Jesus shows mercy, and then John tells us, now that day was the Sabbath. And we're all supposed to go, yes! And we're supposed to go, praise God! But what happens? Now that day was the Sabbath. Woohoo! No. Not everyone. Enter group number two. Different kind of glass half empty with filthy toilet water. And they're pouring it out on the healing parade. Now this may not be immediately obvious, but I'll give you the second point and we'll build it. So number two, Jesus works for our rest. This man is healed. He gets up, he obeys Jesus, taking up his bed and walking. And the man probably delightedly, at least somewhat happy, we don't know, steps out of the colonnades and heads home, being made well after decades of seeing the world from lying on his back or on his side or from sitting. He is walking home and the fun police see him. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> you have to know something. Aside from that being just assaulting our ears, historical rabbinic Judaism, there are 39, 39 recorded types of work that the rabbis documented as part of their attempt to make God in his Old Testament more clear to the masses, more able to work with his commands as more of a to-do list or a flow chart. And these 39 different types of things, anywhere from 
threading things into your clothes to tying a tying a rope around your ankle and making sure you don't get a, get a thousand yards past your house. This kind of work they forbid on the Sabbath. And as R. Kent Hughes put it in his commentary on John, he said, legalists do not celebrate. They observe. And yet there are commands given in the Old and New Testaments. And God expects obedience. That's not wrong. That's not legalism right there. God expecting obedience for commands that he clearly gives. But legalism goes beyond the letter and beyond the spirit of what is written. It makes human traditions, human customs. And over and over and over again, the scripture says that's a very dangerous place to be. There is no rest in legalism. So they say, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, let's just briefly remember what the Sabbath is. So first glimpse of it in Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we don't have a ton of time here, but our whole understanding of what has been called the day of rest starts there. And Israel was later given a command in the Ten Commandments to work six days and rest on the seventh. But it was never given to burden them. It was given as a gift in the midst of toil in a fallen world. Sabbath was to be joyful, a celebration, no work, a reflection of God's resting It was to be the compassionate blessing that God bestows on his people. And so blessing others is a part of God's design for the Sabbath. And it is ultimately, as we see in the New Testament scriptures, that Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, it's in him that we, the people of God, are to find our ultimate rest. So here we have the Lord of the Sabbath, it doesn't say that in the text, it says that in other passages and in the other Gospels. The Lord of the Sabbath has done what? A compassionate work of healing, of blessing a man, actually giving a man rest. A man who has had anything but real rest for 38 years. He has allowed him to use his legs as they were designed to be used. And when Jesus tells him, get up, take up your mat and walk, he does not tell him at all to break any real Old Testament law. And the Jews here totally miss it. Or they intentionally ignore it. And look at what they say to the man. Verse 10, they don't ask him what he's, they don't ask him what he's doing. They assume what he's doing. 
The man could have just risen from the dead and they would not have cared. You're carrying the, your mat on the wrong day. Then begins this exchange where the healing man points out, he points out the obvious, that he, the man who healed me, he told me to do this. And the Jews respond, still staring at the mat on the guy's healthy shoulder. Who told you to, who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? You know what they didn't say? They didn't say anything about the healing. They skip right over that and they go straight for, take up your bed and walk. They're missing Jesus and actually, so is the man who had been healed. He did not know who it was. Later on, sometime later, Jesus intentionally seeks this man out again, finding him in the temple. Verse 14. Now look at what he says to this man. He says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why does Jesus say this? Well, this is Jesus working for the man's full rest. And in this case, he does it by calling the man to repentance and warning him of eternal judgment that is way worse than being an invalid for 38 years. Jesus wants rest for this man. Jesus tells him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He doesn't say that to condemn him. Let's get that nonsense out of our head. Warning somebody is different than condemnation. Jesus tells him this not to condemn. Jesus didn't come to condemn. And the truth is, we, are, we as Christians, we, we are not convicted by Jesus or the Holy Spirit sent to us. We're not convicted for the purpose of condemnation. We're convicted for the purpose of believing him. We're convicted for the purpose of turning away from that which is false and turning to that which is true, from changing our minds about that which is we should never have thought about to that which is truly worthy of, our, of all of our affection, all of our thinking, all of our pleasure. We are called to sin no more so that, as if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, so that we may enter his rest. What actually Jesus is saying is he, Jesus, in saying sin no more, he says he wants us to stop doing our own working and rest in him who works for us. The one who has healed us. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I need to say this, and I'll say it very, hopefully, carefully. I want you to read John chapter 9 to kind of get a, a bit of more full picture here. Not every, not every sin in the world, not every, let me rephrase that, not every healing, let me rephrase it again, sorry. <laughs> not every disease, there we go, not every sickness, not every illness or chronic pain or problem in somebody's life is the result of sin. 
or is the result of that person's specific individual sin. But the way Jesus words this seems to indicate that 38 years ago or so, that man had begun a pattern of sin. in which his disease was a consequence. There are consequences to what we do. But Jesus comes and shows mercy and says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Lame legs are nothing compared to eternity without Jesus. So I say that and we need to be very careful with that. Let's not assume that it's always sin that creates the problems that we face, but let us pray to him. Let us check our hearts before him in his presence. Now, I don't know about you, but my opinion about the man who has been healed, again, it, it, it's mixed. <laughs> See, after Jesus lovingly warns him, what does he do? He goes off to report it to the proper authorities. I'm not so sure that this man has gotten the message about Jesus and from Jesus. He seems actually more afraid about being on the bad side of, of the Jews than believing Jesus. And this is actually really important for this text because this is something we need to hear. We who have been healed in Jesus, believing in him to forgive us and take away our sins. This passage isn't ultimately about the man who has been healed. And our lives are not ultimately about the, the fact that we have been rescued, even though glorious and wonderful that is. Our lives, our saved lives, are about Him, about glorifying Him and seeing Him magnified, seeing Him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe that He is and that He is worthy to be praised and exalted and worshipped as He is, which human beings since the fall, have failed to do. Our lives are for Him. And when they are for Him, we need to understand with both eyes open that siding with Jesus is not the popular opinion in a sinful world. And it will certainly ruffle the feathers of those who believe their own works can save them. And we see that as soon as the Jews know that it's Jesus, verse 16, says this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, harassing him, mocking him for his faith. And as we see, it gets really intense in just a few verses. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What kind of things? Acts of compassion, mercy, giving people rest. But Jesus answered them, verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. They were persecuting him because they didn't want him to work for them. Because his working for lost sinners 
in love, in saving love, it always lovingly exposes the fact that our sinful working can never save us. And we'll get more into this next week because we're going to pick back up in verse 17. But Jesus says this very powerful response to their dislike of him showing mercy and offering people, even them, rest. My father is working until now and I am working. See, the Jews believe that if God ceased working, the universe would unravel. He holds it together. And we Christians know that that is true in Jesus because Colossians 1 says, in him all things hold together. So what Jesus is saying here to them, what he is throwing in their face, rightly, is that as God the Father is always working, God the Son is always working. And he's that son. God is not, and God is not bound by the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Second, all that God has done from the seventh day of creation has been from a posture of rest and bringing rest. Think about that the next time you read through the Bible. As Jesus said in Matthew 11, what did he say? Come to me and work your tail off. No, he said, come to me and I will give you rest. He even wants these persecuting Jews to see that he has come as the God who works to give people rest. My father is working until now and I am working. He is working to give rest and working to show mercy. And it's interesting because it's not just at Bethesda, which means house of mercy, that God is working to give rest and working to show mercy. It's at the place of the skull, as, Christ, as the scriptures say, where the cross with Jesus hung on it was raised into the air. And he took that toilet water for our sins, that toilet water of our sins, and he took it upon himself to pay for it. He cleans our glass. And he fills it with his water. His rest. And his rest to overflow. So the question we must face whether for the first time or whether we're down the road of faith a ways. And we might be down that road where we are discouraged in our faith. May the merciful question come to us again. Do you want to be healed? 
Will we believe him and believe him to continue to show us mercy as he has promised in his word that he will do? Will we trust that it is, it is he, not we, who work for our rest? Jesus shows mercy and works for our rest. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're the kind of God who shows us rest, shows us mercy. All the other kind of gods in this world, the things that we would look to, to fulfill us, to satisfy us, Lord, they're just, they just keep us enslaved. They just keep us bound. They keep us without mercy. They keep us without rest because we're running to and fro trying to work our way to the pool that doesn't actually save. God, I pray for those listening to this who you're asking that question to for the first time. And I pray, Lord, that they would receive your mercy, would receive your rest by believing you as the Christ, the Son of God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters Oh, Lord, please grant us to continue in your mercy, continue in your rest. Help us to trust the scriptural promises that say that your mercies are new every morning and that you give greater grace and that you came, as your word says, to give life and give life to the full. And that you want to fill us with your Holy Spirit to overflowing. God. We humbly submit to you and ask that you would bless us with a renewed sense. And renewed joy. And a renewed passion to just share this with others. That you are working for our rest to give us rest and that you have shown us mercy and day by day you show us mercy. We thank you. It's for your glory and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.